So tonight I'd like to follow up with the fourth Brahma-Bahara and speak more about equanimity, the practice that you were offered this afternoon. So you have some taste of it, taste of the flavor. And perhaps by now you have a sense how each Brahma-Bahara has a different flavor. And that's one of the really lovely things about the practice is getting to know each one in its uniqueness. And then to have a sense of how they all work together, how the flavors blend together into one, into one heart, and how they are expressed at different times in different ways, depending on the situation that we're in. And so today, tonight, we'll have kind of a, a sense of the whole, uh, the whole model of the Brahma Viharas going into more the equanimity now. For me, the equanimity really is a great relief. And some of you may also feel that. There's a few people I spoke to today who it really was the missing link It was the next thing that they needed to understand in terms of working with the situations in their lives. And what's so beautiful about the equanimity is it asks us to let go. We we are doing the practices of well-wishing. We are asking for people to be happy, for ourselves to be happy for people and ourselves to be relieved of pain and suffering, to uh, have joy and success in our lives, and all this intention for this goodness. And then when we come to the equanimity, we're asked to let go of it all. You actually can wish all you would like but what actually happens ultimately isn't up to you. And there can be something that's so kind of relieving in that because we don't have to do it. It's kind of, it's not up to me ultimately. It's not up to you to bring this happiness or this alleviation of the suffering or the joy into our lives. But it's really through the letting go And we're letting go of what I want, what you want, what we think is going to make a difference or what's going to be better or not better. That whole way, the sense of me or the sense of I, the selfing, gets engaged in the way we want things to be. And when that self comes in, that's when we start to experience the dukkha, the suffering. And, and you, can, you can see that on each of the, the other three Brahma-Viharas when we talk about the near enemy. So the near enemy is each, 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 for each one when that sense of self starts to come into play. So I'm sending metta, I'm sending well-wishing, just wishing for happiness and goodness. And then all of a sudden... It's like, oh, but I want that too. I want that for me. Somebody said today, 
um, wishing metta to her dear friend, and it's like, yes, you can have that happiness if I can go along with you. <laughs> if I could be there too, but if you don't want me there, then I don't want you to be happy. So all of a sudden we're going along, and it's not just about the other person being happy, but it's all of a sudden, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? If I do this, am I going to get something back? If I do the metta, the compassion, the mudita, am I going to, is it going to make me feel better? Am I going to get something out of this? And ultimately, there's nothing in it for you. There's nothing in it for you because we have to let go. And the equanimity is what really points to that. Letting go of any expectation, any desire, any attachment, any idea that we have for ourselves and what we think is going to make a difference. And it's in the letting go and the letting go, the wishing. Now, we're not saying not to have the intention for the well-wishing. We do that. We have the intention, but it's like two sides of a coin. On one side is the intention. On the other side is the letting go. And in every moment, every moment, both need to be there the intention for something that we want or something that we wish for, and then let go, let go, let go of needing that to happen. Because ultimately everything is out of our control, this uncontrollability. And we, in a way, we give it back over to nature, to the conditions of the way things are, to this natural order that Heather was speaking about today. Even though I may not understand it, everything is lawful, unfolding according to a natural law. This is what equanimity tells us. Even though it doesn't make sense, even though I can't rationally understand it, everything is unfolding in its own natural way. So there's our participation and then our letting go. And this equanimity is informed by insight, by wisdom into the nature of things, into the conditionality of things, that this is the nature of life. My my equanimity phrase that I love, that I use, and I'll speak more about it uh, later, is as much as I want things to be otherwise, things are as they are. No matter how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. And the short version of that is things are as they are. Things are as they are. And so when I'm reaching out and I'm wanting that result, I want that person to have me in their life, or I want that person to be, I don't want that person to have the suffering they have in their life, or I feel this envy or jealousy towards somebody who has success and happiness, when that self comes into constriction, in the seeing that, if I can come remember the equanimity, then it helps me release that grasping, release that attachment, release that reactivity. And then where I I come back to is a place of stillness, where I'm not reaching out, where I'm not grasping, where I'm not holding on, where I'm not expecting and demanding and controlling and manipulating, but I rest back 
And the equanimity is, asks us to take a breath, to breathe, relax, release the constriction, the contraction, the holding, and let go. And when I come into that, what I can touch is this inner quietude, this inner, this spacious kind of balance. And the reason that I can feel that is because I'm not lifting out and toppling over and grasping and leaving myself for that thing that I think is going to make a difference in my life. And I come back and settle back. And I'm here again. I'm rested back here again into that stillness, that inner quietude, which is the non-reactive mind. The far enemy of equanimity, that which is its opposite, is the reactivity. And so the reactivity is the grasping. And, and, and for me, it's very energetic. Because when I think of grasping, immediately, you know, you can see my, what my hands are doing. It's like, you, it's just like I'm, I'm moving out and trying to grasp that object of my desire or, or what I think is going to bring me my fulfillment, my satisfaction. And so there's a kind of lifting up, a lifting out of my center, of my stillness, of that sense of ease, even of that place of true metta, true love. And so as I let go, I let go, I come back, and I begin to touch what's called the equanimity, the non-reactive mind. This is a beautiful, another beautiful quality, as the others are in their purity. When metta is pure, there's no attachment. When compassion is pure, there's no uh, uh, the, the grief and the sorrow that comes from wanting that situation to be otherwise, and the despair. When I'm sitting in the, in the balanced equanimity, then when the joy arises, I'm not grasping onto it because I love it so much I want it to stay here all the time. But I can keep settling back, resting back into the natural order of things. This equanimity is so still and it's so quiet that it actually has what's called a mirror-like quality to it, to the, to the mind, to the consciousness when we're resting in this equanimity. And this mirror-like quality allows for this immense clarity and objectivity so that I can actually see things the way they are. I can see things in in their pristine state because it's not not clouded with the grasping, with the selfing, with the I want, I demand, I expect. That just the way that the mind can get distorted and then we lose a sense of our connection with the, the, the purity of our being, of our innate nature itself. And it's really from here, it's from this balance, this stillness, that then what's needed springs forth. So when we need to, when we come into a situation where we're in contact with something very painful, very difficult, when I'm in a place of some balance, then the compassion naturally arises. The compassion that naturally wants to alleviate that pain and wish for that person to be free of their pain. 
when I'm resting and sitting in the stillness and I'm with somebody who's, who's feeling a lot of joy and happiness, there's a natural movement of mudita. So happy that they're happy. I just feel, I feel that joy for their joy. Without that, what, do, well, what about me? What about me? Just the resting and the letting go. In a way, it's a true refuge for us. When we know this place, when we know this place of some balance in ourselves, we really can rest. We can pause. And it's a place where we feel recharged because there's not the busyness of mind, the activity of mind, the stress, the anxiety. And we can just be refreshed in that place. We don't feel so lost or confused. And there's a way that I feel I can open to the conditions of my life just as they are, with that clarity, that objectivity, with that acceptance, that allowing. Equanimity implies it, it, it manifests a, an acceptance, a deep acceptance with the way things are. There's this um, contemporary folk tale that I like that in a kind of a, a funny way, it really points to this quality of equanimity and perhaps you'll, you'll hear it in, in this fable. So this um, a businessman needing to attend a conference in a faraway city decided to travel on country roads rather than freeways so he could enjoy a relaxing journey. After some hours of traveling, he realized he was hopelessly lost. Seeing a farmer tending his field on the side of the road, he stopped to ask for directions. Can you tell me how far it is to Chicago, he asked the farmer. Well, I don't rightly know, the farmer replied. Well, can you tell me how far I am from New York then? The business question, businessman questioned again. Well, I don't rightly know, the farmer again replied. Well, then, can you at least tell me the quickest way to the main road, the exasperated businessman asked. No, I don't rightly know, the farmer answered again. You don't really know very much at all, do you, blurted the impatient businessman. Nope, but I ain't lost. So it's kind of like that. <laughs> Nowhere to go, <laughs> nothing to do. You know, we're, we're happily where we are, not getting agitated, not getting stressed out, even though somebody else is. You know, no, I'm, I'm fine here. So the obstacle to equanimity, this really this far enemy, is reactivity. This reactivity of mind, this mind that says, I don't want this. I don't want this to be the way it is. I don't want this to be happening. And we can feel that energetically when, the, when we contract and we constrict and we want to push something away and it's like, no, and we can throw little temper tantrums and you know, get very upset and anxious and stressed and all these very strong emotions that start to come up because it's very hard to let go into the way things are. 
This is the arising of the ego self. The demanding, the controlling, the fixing. We want to fix things. We want to rescue people so they don't have to feel their pain. But it's not coming from a place of balance. It seems that we get triggered in this way because there's some way that we're not able to feel some composure in ourselves with the way things are. We get triggered, and it may have something to do with some fear that things may fall apart if I just let things be the way they are. If I don't do something, if I don't get engaged in some way, if I don't get active in some way, if I just allow and accept, what's going to happen? Things are going to fall apart. I'm going to fall apart. I don't know if I can just tolerate. I don't know if I can just allow things to be just the way they are. And sometimes it's the feeling. We can, our feelings themselves can be so difficult to allow. The feelings of anxiety, the feelings of fear, the feelings of grief, of sadness. It's very hard to just be present with these feelings. And so we want to change the situation in some way, which then will change our feelings so that perhaps we'll be able to feel more calm and tranquil. And so we often then can externalize the situation and make the situation wrong and try to figure out some way to make it different so then I can feel better. I I remember when I was uh, thinking about this, I was remembering my very, very first... um, weekend Vipassana retreat many years ago. It was just a weekend. That's all I could handle at the time. I couldn't imagine doing any more. And at that time, so long ago in the 70s, there weren't really a lot of other retreat options anyhow around here. And uh, the first day, this is the very first day I ever did an overnight or residential but I was um, doing my meditation and it was the first time I had ever sat and just felt what was happening in my experience, really just ever allowed myself to be what was was happening. And it was very uncomfortable and very difficult, and I didn't like it, and I didn't like just having to sit there, and the boredom, and then the judging, and the anxiety, and the expectations, and all the build-up in my mind. and, And I just really started getting to a point where I could hardly be there anymore. It was like it was so intense, and it was so strong, that I just wanted to leave. And um, I remember that I had an idea from my own conditioning that whenever I, when I was a little girl, uh, one way that always helped when I was in a difficult situation was um, to go into the bathroom. (laughs) So you remember at school, you know, when I wanted to get out of class or something and I didn't like what was happening, I would just go to the bathroom and shut the door, and then everything would be fine, right? So I did that. <laughs> I um, thought, oh, it's just getting so intense and I don't like being here. I'll just go into the bathroom and shut the door. And in that way, it's sort of like shutting everything out and then I'll be okay. Well, this time I did it. I went in there, shut the door and it would try, took that breath and okay, yeah, it's all away now. And I realized I was still there. <laughs> It was so startling to just kind of see that I hadn't actually got away from anything. 
Now, for the first time, I always kind of imagined that, you know, because it was externalized, that I had gotten away from the situation. But this time, I really got that I wanted to get away from myself. And it didn't work. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and I'm still feeling all this agitation and nervousness, and I want to leave, and, and I had no way out. There was no escape. And it was the first time, so the very first weekend retreat, I felt pushed right to my edge. And when I went to the teacher and said, I'm, have, I'm freaking out, I'm having a nervous breakdown, I can't do this, um, he said, yeah, cool it, it's okay, you know, just kind of go for a walk, go for a walk, you know, go for a walk, look at the birds, you know, take some breaths, and I did that, and I, I actually got through the weekend. But I, I was really amazed that I was going to get th- uh, that I could get through it. It was so hard. It's so hard. So this this recognition that sometimes what we're being asked to do is just to kind of be present with ourselves in the discomfort, in the anxiety, in the difficult feelings, and how hard that is. And so we'll want to do everything we can to try to change that so that we don't have to be with all that discomfort and that distress. But we so much can externalize the situation and make the problem out there without some awareness, without some insight into where the true location of the problem is, which is ultimately right here. But it's so easy to make somebody else wrong or make they, they need to change, their personality needs to change, or the situation, the job, the, the relationship, or, or whatever it is, the retreat center, the teachers, the, the practice. You know, it's out there. That's what's wrong. And if I can change that, then I'll be okay. And then we can feel some kind of responsibility where we start to, we can shoulder responsibility and kind of feel this heaviness that it's up to us to find the solution. And somehow I have to figure it out. I have to fix it. I have to change it. I have to do something here to make things better. And it's a very, it's a very agitated, kind of restless state of mind when we're not able to just simply and not so simply, really, but to bring that attention and that presence back here and feel what's going on here without having to do anything out there. We often get very identified, very fixed with our ideas about what the solution is that's going to make a difference, and then we get very involved in this activity trying to change it. This is from um, Sogyal Rinpoche, one of the Tibetan uh, masters, who calls this wrong view. He says, wrong views and wrong convictions can be most devastating, the most devastating of all our delusions. Surely Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot must have been convinced that they were right too. And yet each and every one of us has that same dangerous tendency as they did to form convictions or ideas, to believe them without question and act on them. So bringing down suffering not only on ourselves, but on all those around us. We we can get so fixed on what the answer is going to be. He uses an extreme example here, these extreme uh, situations that we've witnessed in this 
uh, the past century. And then he says, on the other hand, the heart of the Buddha's teachings is to see the actual state of things as they are. And this is called the true view. It is a view that is all-embracing as the, as the role of spiritual teachings is precisely to give us a complete perspective on the nature of mind and reality. This objectivity, this clarity, seeing things clearly, and how the sense of the self gets engaged. I want, I need, I demand. And I'm not saying that we're not supposed to want anything. Clearly, we need change. <laughs> we need change. We need, there needs to be some difference that happens in this world, or we're, going, we're, we're moving in a very despairing way. However, what's going to make the difference is where we're coming from when we take action to make that change. Are we coming from clarity? Are we coming from wisdom? Are we coming from balance? Are we coming from love? intelligence, wisdom, are we coming from our reactivity and our, our, which then clouds the mind, it, it distorts the mind. We cannot see clearly in the nature of things, the way things are. So often the first thing that happens when we're wanting to fix the situation from our reactivity is we get into blame and judgment, making the other person wrong. Or, or, or the situation wrong. And then when, it, when that doesn't work and we can get agitated and, and try to change it and try everything possible when it doesn't work, at some point we just get, we start to feel the grief and the sorrow that we can't change it. It, it isn't changing the way I want it to. And we can start to feel the, the helplessness or the hopelessness or the despair. And we can feel very stuck in that. Like, there's, what do we do? Hopeless. There's nothing to do. There's nowhere to go now. Reminded me of this little story, what Yogi told me he, about, he said he was really looking forward to getting a new puppy. And um, really the happiness that this puppy was going to bring. And then he brought the puppy home. And then the puppy started getting into things, you know, started peeing in the wrong places and scratching in the wrong things and whining and agitating. And it was like, oh, this is like not a very good puppy. It's a bad puppy. And then he tried to, you know, try to get the puppy to start behaving and doing things the way he wanted the puppy to. And the puppy wouldn't respond. The puppy was being a puppy. He was still peeing in the places that he shouldn't have peed and scratching on the things. And then he started feeling all this helplessness and this hopelessness. It's like things were out of control with the puppy. <laughs> and he did, got much more than he bargained for. And it was, the very, it was a quite, kind of an insight for him because he could see how he imagined. He had an idea of kind of a picture about what, would, what it was going to be like, and it didn't turn out to be that way at all. And the whole thing got completely chaotic for him, and he didn't like that puppy at all. <laughs> the puppy wasn't giving him what he wanted that puppy to give him. And he could feel, he could see that. 
he could see what was happening in his, his own heart and all the agitation and the stress because it wasn't working out. But because of the awareness, because of the insight, he could work with that. He come to some balance in himself around it. So this, when we get caught in this way, we forget this, this uh, uh, story that Sally mentioned last night of Ajahn Chah, that the cup, the glass is already broken. The cup is already broken. We imagine it's going to be one way. And then when the cup breaks, we get so shocked or disappointed or it's like, what happened? You know? But we forget that the, the cup is already broken. And here's a, a, another, um, you know, we don't know whether this is the same story westernized or whether this is just another um, uh, incident with Ajahn Chah, but it's an... Ajahn Chah must have really liked this uh, metaphor of the, of the glass. This is another little way that, it's talk, that this, this one story came through. Once a Westerner asked Ajahn Chah, the, the great Thai teacher, why he had so many material things in his room. And he replied, you see this glass? To me, it is, it is already broken. While it is still intact on the table, I use it. It even has beautiful colors when the sun shines on it and a lovely sound when I hit it with a spoon. But for me, it's already broken. The cup is already broken. This is equanimity. This is the, the, the view, the wise view, the perspective that can, that can see the way things are, that, that nothing lasts. That everything that comes into manifestation passes away, breaks apart. Nothing lasts. Nothing holds together. Everything falls apart. Everything decays and dies away. Maybe not in our own lifetime, but at some point everything will be destroyed. Nothing into back into rises from nothing and back into nothingness. And equanimity the view of equanimity sees this, knows this. And when we know the cup is already broken, we don't hold on in the same way. We don't grasp on in the same way. We can still love things and enjoy the beauty of things, but we don't hold on. We can still enjoy, still appreciate still engage, but we know that it's going to change. It's going to break. So one of the strategies, one of the ways that this selfing manifests that's an obstacle to equanimity is this grasping or reactivity, the the demanding, the attaching, the clinging that arises through a kind of constriction, an agitation, a, uh, a restlessness, a stress in ourselves. Another way that this reaction manifests that's an obstacle to true equanimity, and this is the, what's called the near enemy of equanimity because it actually looks like equanimity, but it still has some reaction in it. And that is what's called the Uh, the position or the posture of indifference or withdrawal, when we actually pull back 
from a situation and you want to disconnect and disengage from it. It's kind of like, um, that's just the way it is. You know, that's just the way things are. And there's just kind of a, a kind of falling asleep. It's a little bit of falling asleep and not engaging, not connecting with the situation. And we can feel quite still. We can feel um, a, a certain kind of balance in ourselves. And that's why it's called the near enemy, because it can it's so, it's a subtle discrimination. It's a subtle distinction here. But in it, we're not connected. We, there's still some fear in it. There's still some uh, a reaction in it because we don't, we don't actually want to engage. There's, there's a way that we're kind of denying life, pulling back from life, feeling much more comfortable, feeling more settled, just being a little bit separated, a little bit disengaged. And, and this, this particular posture can, you know, can be quite um, uh, elevated in spiritual practice. This kind of detached, kind of indifferent, unemotional, cool, kind of um, just, just still kind of way of being. But we have to be very watchful in ourselves to see what's actually going on. Do we still feel that we are meeting life, that we're, we're able to come close to the painful conditions of life? Are we still engaged with people? Is our heart still open? Are we, are we wishing uh, well for people's happiness and joy and success? Is, there, is that that kind of alive, vital engagement for us? Because true equanimity is fully engaged. It's fully connected. And because it's engaged, it can respond. It can actually be actively uh, responsive to what's arising moment to moment in a wise way, in a compassionate way. We are, we're here. We're actually here. We're present. And because we're present, we can meet life in the way that it needs to be met. One of my um, favorite cartoons, and I have it with me, maybe I'll put it up on the notice board, is there's um, um, a monk who's sitting on a platform and he's looking out at this beautiful scenery of, uh, with palm trees and the ocean waves and the sunset, and, and it's, he's just, just so serene. And then you see the back of him in the cartoon, and then behind the, the monk, and because the perspective is far back enough, you can see what's behind the monk. And there's a screen, and behind the screen is just a pile of junk, <laughs> like, um, like somebody's garage that you know, they haven't cleaned out in 20 years. You know? and, and the screen has also pictures of palm trees and <laughs> sunset and you know, the waves, and then all the stuff is just, stuck back behind the, behind the screen. And it's really just, it's kind of like what we want to do. We sort of want to just push it all back there and not have to deal with it, right? You know? And in a way, that's a, a little bit of that quality of indifference or, or that's separating from, from life itself. We're not fully engaging 
uh, with with all that's all that's here for us. So we have these two kind of extremes in a way. This kind of going out and with the with the reaction and the 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 grasping and the kind of the stress and some anxiety, and then the the pulling back into more of the quiet stillness, but still as a, a reaction, as a, as a way to cut off. Both are, are manifestations of cutting off from our experience in some way. And then on top of all that, we have this kind of complicated thing of, about ourself where we actually have, uh, often have quite a, a solid self-image about who we actually take ourselves to be. And so we get caught in all kinds of ideas about how we're actually showing up. So if we're showing up very anxious and stressful and uh, grasping and demanding, and then we can feel bad about that and judge ourselves and give ourselves a hard time, and then that complicates the whole thing, and then we get more confused and more lost and... Uh, and it just, we keep spinning, spinning, and we're, we're lo- really losing that sense of our ground, that ground of, of who we are. And then we can bring in the, some spiritual practices and try to get ourselves calm, and then we, we can try, then we start to have a, what's a, a spiritual self-image, and then, oh, now I'm somebody who's really calm and really tranquil, and I don't get angry. I don't get upset. I can really manage. And, but it's still just we're still caught in another self-image, we're trying to be a particular way, and we're still not connected to that ground, that, that innate, natural ground of our being that is naturally still, that is naturally quiet, that is not, it doesn't, it doesn't come about through any kind of ideation, any kind of mental constructs, any kind of, of idea. It's just what is. Just what is. My practice of equanimity, and, and many of you have heard me speak about this, but my practice of equanimity started uh, when, I, when I started going to India. Um, about, I started going about 20 years ago, 20 some years ago. And then I went for 15 years consecutively every winter and spent two or three months there. Um, and I was teaching part of that time and traveling part of that time. And India w- it was where I, I absolutely uh, took on the equanimity practice because I needed it desperately. Because <laughs> I was so thrown around by my reactions to what I was witnessing, what I was engaging in, seeing all the poverty and the sickness and the, and the filth and the, all this, the, the way I would get sick. And, and it was just so difficult on so many levels. And I, w- I also initially went as a teacher uh, in my early years of being a teacher, and I was having so many reactions, and then I, you know, thought, well, but I'm a teacher, I'm not supposed to be having so many reactions, you know, I'm, and then this, you know, trying to make myself more calm and more tranquil and, you know, more equanimous, and then that made things more difficult because I was putting all that expectation on myself, and I was getting myself into all kinds of tangles and knots, and, oh, it was painful, and so it's the equanimity, the practice of equanimity that really helped me through. Really coming to a place of acceptance in myself. This is, 
this is how things are right now. This is who I am right now. As much as I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. Things are they as, as they are. May I accept the conditions of my mind and my body with equanimity. May I accept what's happening so I am not imposing so much on top of myself. Because I was in a very difficult and challenging situation. I had lived in a very protected um, um, middle-class life up until that point. I had never really been into any kind of developing country before that time. I was very, lived a very privileged lifestyle. Uh, I, I hadn't seen the world at all, and I was sort of thrown into this uh, uh, teeming, alive, chaotic, you know, kind of uh, culture, and I couldn't handle it. I had extreme feelings of hate. I hated being there. By the second time I was there, I would lie in bed at, at the uh, Sri Venkateshwar temple, and next door there was a, another temple, and at, all through the night they would ring the bells, these big bells, you know, just clang, clang, clang. And, and I remember lying there going, I hate being here. <laughs> I hate being here. And, you know, and I, but I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to, how to hold it in myself. But then, but then there would be all this beauty and all this exquisiteness and all this mystery and all this sacredness and magical aspect to it. And it was so extreme. So I was thrown into the extremes. And, and, and the only thing that helped was the equanimity. To keep saying the phrases. And, and when I would be with people who were very poor or very, uh, who were eating um, a, a, a cup of rice and a, um, a couple of vegetables and a cup of tea a day, and I, and I would be speaking with them with a translator and hearing about their lives, and my heart would just be sinking into grief and sorrow and just having to remind myself things are as they are. Even though I don't understand it, things arise according to a natural law. I don't, you know, in my mind wanting to understand and, 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 and making sense out of it and getting into this struggle and grief and sense of helplessness and hopelessness and coming back to the equanimity. Things are as they are. Things are as they are. This is what helped me. This has become my main practice, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about this tonight. Because I, it has given me so much peace. It has helped me find to uh, rest into, to settle into a place of refuge, a place where I can um, uh, settle and be still without getting caught in all these reactions, where the mind wants to understand, the, mi- the mind gets, wants to figure it all out and try to fix and change, and, and why can't it be otherwise? Why can't it? And then taking the breath again, breathing, settling, resting. Things are the way they are. Very challenging. Very challenging. Sometimes I wonder how the human heart 
can stay open to the immensity of the pain in this world. And we are, we practice being happy, we practice being joyful. We've talked, last night Sally talked about that. Our practice is about finding deep inner contentment, deep peace, and yet we live in this world. We live in this world that is very confusing, very challenging, very painful in a lot of ways. Of course, it's also very beautiful and very joyful in the same way. We say it's a world of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And how, how can the human heart open to all of that? And this is really what we're being asked to do in our practice, in our mindfulness practice, in our, in our, in our awareness practice, is to be here and open to what is. And that's why it's so hard, because we're being asked to open to the immensity of what's here on this earth, in this world, as human beings. And it's only through the resources of our spiritual practice that really allows that opening. Because if we don't have connection to our our, our equanimity, to our inner stillness, to our quietude, to our wisdom, our intelligence, our natural intelligence, to our love and our compassion. How else are we going to open? Because if we leave it to the ego self, the ego self is just going to want to try to figure everything out and try to fix it and rescue and try to avoid the pain and hold on to comfort and pleasure. And, and that's very tiring, very exhausting. And so the equanimity says, let's just put it down. Put it down for a little while. Rest. Rest. Rest in your heart. Rest in your being. Rest in your body. Take some breaths. Take a pause. May I accept things just as they are. May I be undisturbed by the coming and going of events. May I understand that pleasure and pain arise and pass away. Arises and passes away on their own. That's what this world is, the conditions of this world. Praise and blame, success and failure, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, these eight worldly winds, the winds of the world. And without a sense of center, without a sense of ground, a firm ground, word is going to get blown all over by these winds, the winds of the world, praise and blame, gain and loss, success and failure, pleasure and pain. That is, those are the conditions of the world. No way around it, unavoidable. 
yet we can find that root, that root of our being that holds us, that firm ground of our nature, of our being. We can feel it when we breathe into our belly, when we hold our feet firmly on the earth. We feel ourselves upright and present and connected and breathing. And we are here, I am here. We feel that quality of presence, awakeness, aliveness, connection with life, engagement with life. I am here, connected, firm. This is where our practice comes in as well. When we walk, we feel our feet on the ground. When we breathe, we breathe into our body, into our belly. We feel ourselves sitting on the cushion. We feel our, the, the earth quality of our body. We feel the density of our body, the hardness, the firmness. And this holds us. This is support for us. So when the, when the winds come, and these are the winds in our mind, our own mind, the winds that blow in our own consciousness. And then they blow in the external world. And, and, and where are we? How do we hold that? How do we support ourselves so that we don't get thrown all over, thrown around? I, I, I want to read this, um, talk about finding a... F- Talk about the earth and finding a firm ground. Um, I was in New Zealand and I saw this um, article in the newspaper. I was this spring. I was there, and uh, I want to read this article to you. It's it, the the um, title is "Buried Alive, but Worker Lives on Air in Hard Hat." And it goes like this, the power of positive thinking and Buddhist meditation techniques saved the life of a Chinese construction worker. It was a cool early spring day in the eastern coastal part of Ningpo. Wang, I'll just call him Wang, was working at a construction site in the booming city. The job that day for the 52-year-old worker was to dig a five-meter ditch. There was nothing to distinguish Wang from the tens of thousands of men across China laboring in one of the biggest building booms that the world has seen. Without warning, a wall of the ditch collapsed, burying Wang under a huge pile of earth. Like most construction workers in China, he had little in the way of protective equipment except for his tough plastic safety helmet. It was to be enough to save his life. The rim of his helmet had, by chance, trapped a tiny pocket of air around his face. Wang knew that if he panicked and his breathing accelerated, he might use up that little amount of oxygen before rescuers could reach him. He forced himself to be calm. Just even that. (laughs) He, He forced himself to be calm. He says, I had my back to the wall and didn't know it was falling until it was on top of me. It was suddenly dark and I realized what had happened and found that there was a small air pocket in front of me, Wang said. That was when the Buddhist turned to meditation to control his intake of oxygen. I knew it would not last, so I made myself relax and concentrated on slowing down my breathing by meditation. Above the ground, workers were scrambling through the earth to try to bring Wang to the surface alive. 
Construction workers and a uniformed rescue team clawed away the earth with their hands until they found Wang's helmet. It took two hours. But finally they pulled out Wang alive from the earth that could have been his muddy grave. Doctors were astounded, saying that a person could normally not live longer than five minutes in a similar sealed space. One local doctor said, it's a miracle that he's alive after being buried for two hours. Meditation has a history dating back thousands of years in China. However, it is a technique more usually associated with Buddhist monks and doctors of traditional Chinese medicine than construction workers. Wang was one of the lucky ones in China, uh, lucky ones on China's building sites. When I read that, I mean, talk about conditions and the power of his mind to not fall into reactivity and states of panic and distress and restlessness and anxiety and the knowing, the, the, the capacity to be able to rest in those kind of conditions, to simply rest and to go and to be very quiet and peaceful so that he could stay alive and not use his breathing, the air. This is inspiring. And so one of the things equanimity asks us, this is one of the questions that equanimity asks us, is do conditions need to change for us to know deep peace? Do the conditions in our life need to change for us to know deep peace? Because it's only the mind, the ego mind, that will tell us otherwise. But when we quiet ourselves, when we can come into presence, to awareness, and to feel and to sense what's here now, to be here without our reaction and our grasping, our demands, our expectations, our wants, our, our dislikes, our, our strong preferences, but to rest in to the inner quietude and then allow the response to life to arise from there, to allow the action to arise from there because action will arise. That's the nature of things. So action will arise, and then when the action arises, it arises with wisdom. It arises with equanimity. It arises with love. It arises with clarity. It arises, the action arises informed by our compassion and our wisdom. This is what we call true action, true action in the world. So we have our practices now, practice of metta, karuna, mudita, and upeka.
May we all awaken into the depth of insight and wisdom that is possible for all of us. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.